Gilda, je suis content de vous. <laughs> and off the mark, David is trying to get all of the good quotes for himself this show. Welcome to Napoleon number 14, Mr. Markham. Well, welcome to you too, uh, Cameron. Of course, I have to get in uh, the the first shot of the quote like that because I figured that you and I would be scrambling to be the first one to do that. And I will, I will take the honour of doing the English translation then. Soldiers, I am pleased with you. About as big a compliment as you could get from Napoleon. And this is what he said to his soldiers um, after the very famous Battle of Austerlitz. And I don't think we're giving too much away at the beginning of the show by saying that it was a happy ending for Napoleon. It was a happy ending, and and uh, I will give more of those of that very famous uh, proclamation that that he gave at the end of the battle uh, when we get to the end of the battle in two or three hours. <laughs> yeah, David just said to me off air. Look, I think it'll be a short one today, which is what David says to me at the beginning of every episode, and then two hours later, I'm trying to. Uh, gently but firmly shut him up so we can uh, <laughs> move on. Um, well, for me, for me to say a show is going to be short is, of course, the kiss of death to any hope thereof. Now, let me just uh, quickly uh, remind people, uh, in the last episode of The Napoleon Show, we talked about the breakdown of peace with uh, the rest of Europe, I guess, between France and the rest of Europe. We talked about the creation of the third coalition between Austria, Russia, and, was it Prussia? Hmm. <laughs> Where, England. It was England? Where do they fit in? Where was Prussia? No, Prussia was 1806, so it was the UK, That's Austria, right. and Russia in the third coalition. Exactly. And uh, I think Naples and Sweden were in there as well. but uh, Yeah, a few minor powers, but the, that was a big three. And then, you know, as Napoleon is now the emperor, he was able to do some things that he wasn't able to get done as a general or even as the mm. first consul. The creation of the Grand Army, he created the marshals of the empire... And uh, we talked about the unfortunate General Mack and uh, the taking of Ulm in this campaign. We talked about the capture of Vienna and we stopped just shy of getting into what I think most Napoleonic historians probably think of as Napoleon's finest hour. Would you agree, David? The Battle of Austerlitz. I think certainly from a military standpoint, this has got to be Napoleon's uh, fine, finest hour. It's considered by, by most military historians and others as, as Napoleon's single greatest victory. Uh, it's, it's used as a classic example uh, of, of how you can uh, fool your enemy, uh, the, the, the use of uh, psychological uh, uh, efforts as, as well as military efforts, uh, doing, doing the unexpected, uh, Quick movements uh, and, and 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 all all wrapped up in one in one battle. Uh, it's it's called the Battle of the Three Emperors, uh, of course, because uh, the, there there were three uh, emperors there: Napoleon, Tsar uh, Alexander, and of course also the Emperor of, of Austria. So you've got uh, <clears throat> you've got the stage set for something that was clearly going to be very big for somebody. And, and again, as you say, we all know how it. Uh, comes out, but we'll talk a little bit about, you know, how it happens to come out the way it did. It also has to be pointed out that Napoleon, 
is is not in as great a shape as you might think. Now he's he's defeated General Mackley, unfortunate General Mack. He's taken Ulm. He's taken fifty thousand Austrian troops out of the equation. He's captured a bunch of weapons and so on, and that's all very well and good. Uh, however, he also finds out that. Uh, He's lost the Battle of Trafalgar. He finds this out while he's in Vienna. So he, he knows he's suffered a naval defeat. And clearly he needs to win a big one uh, on land if, if he is to remain uh, in, in the position of power that, to which he has become accustomed. At any rate, uh, Napoleon is, as, as you say, in Vienna. And uh, he decides it's time to take the initiative. You'll recall from our, our last uh, uh, the conversation uh, that uh, the Austrians had moved north to tie up with the uh, Russians who had been coming across. And uh, Napoleon decides he will leave the comfort of uh, Schönbrunn Palace in Vienna and go north to to uh, greet them. The Austrians and Russians uh, were about 50 miles or so east of Brunn, uh, near the fortress of Olmitz, uh, and Napoleon moves north uh, to, to Brunn, uh, which today is in the uh, Czech Republic, and uh, then moves uh, a little bit to the east uh, and takes up his uh, position at Austerlitz, or Schlockhof Austerlitz, as it is now known. Uh, which is just a few miles from Bruin. As a, as, if I recall, it's no more than a half an hour drive or, or less uh, through the hills. And opposite him, of course, is Tsar Alexander, who is a 28-year-old lad, uh, rather brash, uh, who may or may not have actually killed his father, Tsar Paul, to to become the Tsar himself. That's a we could do half of an episode just on that, I suppose. Uh, and uh, he's joined the Austrian Emperor Francis, uh, Francis the First or Francis the Second, take your pick. The Francis the First of uh, the Holy Roman Empire and Francis II of Austria, uh, first of Austria, uh, second of Austria, sorry. And it gets very confusing even for me. <laughs> and uh, they combined to around 85,000 soldiers, which is a, a fairly effective uh, fighting force. The, 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 they've both been traveling some, but then so was Napoleon. Napoleon uh, is able to field about 73,000, so he's about 12,000 in the hole, but then again, uh, he's Napoleon, and that's uh, that's worth a few thousand uh, as well. Also, Napoleon has other soldiers that are moving north, uh, primarily from the south, uh, from Italy. Unfortunately, so do, do the Austrians, uh, who also have soldiers uh, in the south, and neither one knows for absolute certain whose soldiers will arrive or will not arrive in time to be to be a factor. Uh, Napoleon decides that what he has to do is to play a little game with with his opponents, uh, not to just sit there and, and slog it out, but to to fool them into doing what he wants them to do. And maybe it's here that the old expression of Napoleon is never interrupt your enemy when they're making a mistake uh, uh, comes into play. I, I don't recall off the top of my head when he said that, but it could very well uh, apply to Austerlitz because Napoleon is able to sort of suck them in to 
to doing exactly what he wants them to do uh, and and this of course uh, leads to directly to to their defeat <clears throat> So he sends his general, Jean Savary, uh, uh, to see the czar. Uh, over at Olmitz. And, and Savre goes over to, to chat with uh, Tsar Alexander, who of course uh, greets him and, and uh, he's, he's treated uh, luxuriously and they sit and they talk and, and basically uh, Savre's job is to convince the Tsar that Napoleon is in tough shape. He's he's far from home. He's had to leave a lot of soldiers along the way to guard his lines of communication, his line of retreat or withdrawal. He's got people in Vienna. His soldiers is you know they're tired because of all of this. And frankly, he Napoleon would would like peace. He'd like to find a way. To you know, can't we all just get along? Kind of thing. <clears throat> and Tsar Alexander buys this hook, line, and sinker. I mean, Tsar Alexander. You know, there's a lot of good good things and bad things about Alexander. But one thing is, he's young, he's brash, uh, he's not the the the, the brightest bulb uh, in, in the chandelier at this point, and, or candle, I suppose, in the chandelier. And so he <laughs> buys this. And and instead of being willing to negotiate a peace and thus save a lot of lives and so forth, he is convinced that now has come the time to crush Napoleon once and for all. Not only are we going to defeat the usurper uh, on the battlefield, but we're going to beat him so bad uh, that, that he will lose power back in France. You know, his time has clearly come as far as our Alexander uh, is concerned. Uh, no word on whether uh, Francis fully agrees uh, with this or not, but Francis certainly uh, is going to go along with it. <clears throat> Well, this falls right into Napoleon's trap. Uh, he wants them to believe that now is the time to strike because he knows that they may receive reinforcements, not only from the south, but most notably from Prussia. You mentioned a while ago, well, which coalition was Prussia a part of? They're not a part of this coalition yet, but they're wavering. They're thinking about it. They may or may not decide uh, to join in. And I think they, he's got his finger up in the air and he's looking to see which way the wind blows. <clears throat> and the longer Napoleon stalls, the, 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 the more likely, the greater the likelihood that, that, that Prussia is going to enter the scene. Uh, and so Napoleon wants a battle and he wants it now. Now, Napoleon had taken position on the high ground, uh, an area called the Protzen Heights. You can go today and you can see little monuments there and so on, and, and you can look out over the countryside. And it's really, it's really where you want to be if you are going to fight a battle. And this, of course, is, is standard military procedure. You always try to gain the high ground. It's one of the reasons why Wellington was reasonably successful at Waterloo and, and, and so on. You want the high ground, and Napoleon has the high ground. And then he does the, the unthinkable. He leaves the high ground. 
he moves his soldiers back into a valley and in fact part of them over a ridge uh, below the Protzen Heights to the west of the Protzen Heights. You only do this if you're thinking of skedaddling, if you're thinking of getting out of there. And that's exactly what Tsar Alexander assumes is the case. And so uh, they, the Allies quickly move their soldiers onto the Protestant Heights. They're, they're, they're probably amazed. They can't believe that Napoleon is doing this, but he does it. And so they grab the heights. And they think they're in the catbird seat now. They can look out over the valley and they are going to crush Napoleon. <clears throat> so meanwhile, General Savre returns. And Savre returns and he brings with him uh, a representative of Tsar Alexander, a uh, Prince Peter Dolgorkuki. Okay? Uh, Dolgorkuki. Don't mind my German or my Russian pronunciation. Sorry. <laughs> now this prince was, you know, like like father-like prince here, you know. The czar uh, was arrogant and brash, and so was this young fellow. And he goes over there, and he treats Napoleon like he was an, a junior enlisted man. He goes to Napoleon, and he's lecturing Napoleon. He's telling Napoleon about the reality of politics and how all of the Europeans are against him, and he has no chance to to survive, and, and yada, yada, yada. Uh, he just goes on and on, and and he says to Napoleon, the only way you're really going to gain peace, uh, uh, Monsieur uh, Bonaparte, is to uh, pretty much give up everything you've you've gained. You know, all of the 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 territory you've gained, all of the influence you've gained, all of your power, you're going to have to get up, and then maybe we'll allow you to have to have peace. Well, Napoleon has to be livid. Napoleon is not used to being talked to this way, as you can well imagine. And you know, the the, the, nat- the natural inclination would no doubt be to 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 give this young whippersnapper a tongue lashing himself, but he doesn't. <clears throat> He sits there and he takes it. He allows uh, this young prince to to go ahead and do this, and and then uh, you know, and maybe even that he agrees somewhat. Well, you know, you may have a point, uh, my friend, and so forth. So the prince goes back and he reports to Tsar Alexander as our Francis, our Emperor Francis. And he says, "My God, <clears throat> we have Napoleon on the ropes. Let's get him and let's get him now." Well, Napoleon, of course, this is exactly what he wants. This is the trap that he is springing. And uh, the, the Allied forces fall right into it. So, I will have a sip of my medication. <laughs> While you're doing that, let me get in my couple of lines for the show. Go right ahead. I'm, I'm sorry, you know, sometimes I, I just keep going right at it. And, and by the way, let me say sort of parenthetically, we've had a lot of comments about the conversational style that we have. And, and I'm very uh, gratified by that because this was something that a lot of podcasts don't do, and uh, especially historical podcasts. A lot of times it's just one person ranting and raving about one subject or another. And occasionally I do that, as I'm afraid I just did. But normally uh, I really enjoy the, the, the repartee and the back and forth of this conversational mode. And I'm very pleased. To, to say that the the listeners out there who have bothered to mention this uh, thing have, have indicated that, that they like it as well. And so that's, that's very nice. 
It is. It's, it's, we really appreciate the amount of feedback that we've been getting from the show. It's fantastic. So, uh, according to, to my notes, and it's, it's whilst it was fun to do a show with you uh, live in San Francisco last month, it's also good to be sitting here surrounded by my, my source materials again. So I feel like <laughs> yeah, I can... Your, your cheat sheets. My cheat sheets, so I feel like I can contribute my usual amount, uh, which isn't much, but you know, I do what I can. Um, oh, nonsense. The, the Just to... Uh, further drive home how deliberate this strategy was on behalf of Napoleon. The day before the battle, uh, he took some of his uh, marshals down to the actual battlefield, the valley, and uh, was quoted by Desaigur in his uh, diary as having told uh, the emperor told the marshals, "Gentlemen, examine this ground carefully. It is going to be a battlefield. You will have a part to play upon it." So he was very consciously uh, drawing the Allies down into this situation. As you said, it was all part of a a marvellous tactic to appear weak and like he was in retreat and to get them to basically weaken their centre. And, you know, the exciting thing, I guess, about this battle from a military perspective is that this was the first time Napoleon had been in complete control of the army. I mean, even as first consul, there were still some generals in the army who thought they were pretty good and and were prepared to disobey or disregard orders and not really carry them out with full efficacy. But uh, this time around, the dude was the emperor, and you couldn't get away with that kind of stuff anymore without getting yourself into a, a lot of trouble. Well, tell that to Bernadotte, but yeah, for the most part, I agree. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't completely flawless, but for the most part. Um, so I've got something else here. I've got the um, the order of the day from Napoleon, just a, a quote from the order of the day, which I, I love the, the, the way that this is put. I'll read to it. Uh, this is from uh, David Chandler's uh, campaign book. In part, it ran like this. The positions which we occupy are formidable, and while the Russians march upon our batteries, I shall attack their flanks. Soldiers, I shall in person direct all your battalions. I shall keep out of range if, with your accustomed bravery, you carry disorder and confusion into the ranks of the enemy. But, if the victory is for a moment uncertain, you shall see your emperor expose himself in the front rank. Note that no man shall leave the ranks under the pretext of carrying off the wounded. Let every man be filled with the thought that it is vitally necessary to conquer these paid lackeys of England who so strongly hate our nation. So, you know, after <laughs> after the Emperor has told you that he's going to go and put himself out in the firing line if uh, you're not doing a good job, I guess it was uh, firmly placed in their minds that they needed to... Be, that the Emperor had certain expectations upon the army, which, uh, you know, almost to a man, they did themselves proud this day. Well, they certainly did. Uh, and, and, and Napoleon, uh, uh, the, the night before on, on December 1st of 1805, uh, we should get the date in there, uh, somewhere along the line. Uh, Napoleon uh, goes on a tour, 
he he walks among his soldiers, and this is unexpected. They they weren't expecting him to come, and soon when soldiers began to realize that they they begin to make uh, torches uh, from the straw of their beds, and they light them uh, up, and they're holding him to light his way, and they're all crying out, you know, "Vive l'empereur!" Long live uh, the emperor! Uh, and they, they they light these enormous bonfires to to celebrate. Uh, you know, they they all they all they shout out, uh, "Vive l'empereur!" "C'est l'empereur!" It's the emperor. C'est l'anniversaire. It's the it's the anniversary because of course this is the night before the anniversary of Napoleon's coronation as emperor a year earlier. Uh, Napoleon later will say that this was the, the the finest evening of his life, and 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 I don't doubt uh, for a minute that 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 was the case. But as it happens, and I don't think the soldiers anticipated this, but as it happens. All those bonfires really kind of fed into what Napoleon was trying to accomplish psychologically with with the Allied forces now up on the Pratzen. They think that the soldiers are burning their bedding and then preparation of leaving. That that they may even catch Napoleon, you know, uh, uh, you know, on his way out, uh, uh, as it were. And, and this is all the better from the Allied point of view. And uh, so he's on the ropes. He's weak and, and from their point of view, uh, and he may very well uh, be in the process of packing up to go. And of course, that makes him even weaker. So it all it all feeds into what uh, uh, Napoleon uh, had in mind, uh, and and uh, it worked uh, it worked brilliantly. So let's move forward. It's the morning of the second of December. And uh, is this where you want to go? And the the battle starts about eight a.m. in the morning. Sure. Uh, the 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 the, uh, the the battle starts. The Napoleon has has moved his uh, uh, soldiers into uh, to to a pretty good position. Uh, and uh, he he has uh, forces on the left and right, and an awful lot of Napoleon's center is obscured from view, uh, partly uh, because of a, a, a series of ridges that they're behind, and partly, of course, because of the famous uh, fog of Austerlitz. Uh, a heavy morning, you know, was it mist or fog? It's hard to say. Uh, really kept the the allied forces from being able to see you know what napoleon was up to and uh uh therefore they thought that napoleon's greatest forces were on their left napoleon's right and that's where they begin to to go they go to the the right flank, which they thought might be uh, weakened at this point, uh, General Frederick uh, Buxoden uh, s- takes his men down the heights to attack the right flank, which would be to the to the more or less to the south, uh, and uh, and that's important to know, by the way, is toward toward Vienna, uh, and. They attack Napoleon's right, but they soon discover that, well, they're not going to walk over these guys quite as easily as they had anticipated. Well, they could pull back and reconsider. Wait a minute, there's, there's something wrong with this picture. 
But what they do, of course, and this is a, a natural thing to do, uh, they begin to move even more soldiers off the Protzen Heights and down against uh, Napoleon's right flank. Now you got to remember, and it's, again, we don't have maps in front of us here, but I the Protzen—well, you do, but our, our listeners don't. Although maybe our listeners do. Well, I'm going fact- to put a, a great high-resolution map up on the the notes for the podcast. So what I suggest, if people are listening to this and they're not sitting in front of a map, you might want to pause the podcast, go to the notes on napoleon.thepodcastnetwork.com, and there you'll see a map of the deployment of the battalions for either side. So it'll make a lot more sense. Okay, very good. That's 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 excellent. That's the nice thing about the web, and that, by the way, is a very nice thing about about the way you handle this entire site. There's some wonderful graphics and pictures and so on up there, and I'll I'll have to send you a few of my uh, collection that you can put on there as well from from Austerlitz. I've got a wonderful uh, engraving from the Battle of Austerlitz that I'll, I'll you may have to remind me to uh, to send you. At any rate, the the Protzen Heights is the center of the Allied forces. Unbeknownst to them, it lies pretty much directly opposite Napoleon's main force, which is hidden. So they're sending all of their forces, not all of them, but a a great deal of their forces off to their left, Napoleon's right, because they have no clue that Napoleon has really concentrated major forces in the dead center. Well... Around 9 o'clock, Napoleon is reconnoitering. He's looking around. He says, you know, now clearly is the time. Okay, It's the time for us to strike. And so he sends one of his best marshals, Marshal Nicholas Soult, up out of the fog, charging up the center, up the Protzen Heights. Now, nine o'clock in the morning, even even at that time of year, and I, I've, I've been there in January, and it's cold, and it's foggy, and it's windy, and it's not a whole lot of fun up there on top of the Protzen Heights. But by nine o'clock, you know, the, the 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 sun is beginning to make its appearance, and the fog is beginning to to dissipate a little bit, and the Allies suddenly realize that there's this enormous force. Under the overall uh, command of uh, Marshal Soult, led, spearheaded by General Dominique Van Damme's forces, and this thing is coming right at him like a freight train. I've got to stick another quote in here for you. I think that's a good idea. (laughs) According to my notes again, uh, around about 8.45am, Napoleon asked Soult how long it would take for his men to reach the Protzen Heights. And Marshal Soult replied, uh, Less than 20 minutes, sire, for my troops are hidden at the foot of the valley, hidden by fog and campfire smoke. In that case, we will wait a further quarter of an hour, said Napoleon. And apparently he ordered the attack 15 minutes later, saying, One sharp blow, and the war is over. And of course he was right. (laughs) Well, that's right. And the sun, the legendary sun of Austerlitz appeared. 
Yeah, that's right. The son of Astrolitz appears. Uh, and I'm, I'm coming up with a couple of other quotes that I wish I had, uh, had, had, had used before. At one point, for example, uh, uh, Napoleon, uh, says to his soldiers before tomorrow night, that army is mine, as he notices it, it's moving into position and so on. Uh, and little, little did the enemy know how, how true that was going to prove to be. Uh, at any rate, the son does make an appearance as, as we, as as we say, and uh, uh, Napoleon's uh, forces are sweeping up the hill. Well, you know, this is, we're not going to be able to talk in great detail about uh, specific troop movements and so on. Suffice to say uh, that uh, for all of the efforts made by the Allies, uh, the French soon take the heights. Okay, uh, the the Allies uh, are pushed back. Now they make a counterattack. There's at one point with the Russian Imperial Guard, it's a little bit dicey, uh, but the the French Imperial Guard and others uh, uh, force them off. Uh, they are in fact defeated, and the French position is secure uh, on the Protzen Heights by later in the day. Now. We've got the old hammer and anvil routine here. You've got Napoleon's right wing, which has, by the way, been reinforced uh, by uh, soldier, French soldiers coming up from the south, uh, f- from from Italy and and, and on up uh, uh, in, into the area, uh, and uh, so that's far stronger than it was when Buxhoden, uh first started to go against it. And now Soult, uh, with the Imperial Guard infantry on top of the uh, Protzen Heights, can begin to move down the heights. And Buxhoden is stuck in the middle. Uh, there's a hammer coming down from above, and he's got uh, uh, the French forces down below him, or in front of him as the anvil. Uh, and he's really <laughs> kind of literally between a rock and a hard place, as they say, and is hammered and suffers a huge number of losses. Uh, some of them try to escape over the lakes. Uh, there's various reports and controversy about just how many of them were were actually killed in the lakes. The original story was that the lots and lots of Austrians were trying to escape across this series of lakes, and the French artillery broke up the ice, and thousands of them died. Well, apparently there there's not exactly good strong evidence that that many of them died in the lakes. So so who knows for sure exactly what. Uh, what happened there uh, and however some of that misinformation to be fair may have been spread by Napoleon in his reports of the battle he, he may have inflated the number of people but yes yeah, it is as you say and again trying to be fair to show everyone that we're not just selling the sunny side of Napoleon here uh, there were stories that he told his uh, gunners to concentrate their cannons on the ice when he saw the the um, Allies retreating towards the ice and had them, you know, destroy the ice. So all these guys and their uh, uh, artillery fell down into the water. And I, I think that um, the, the historians today tend to suggest it was probably a lot lower than the thousands that it was initially thought. 
Well, I think that's true. In in his uh, bulletin that, that describes the battle, which I have in front of me uh, from my, my, my from my book Imperial from my book Imperial Glory, as it happens, yes, uh, he says uh, the, the corps was driven from position to position. We saw the horrid spectacle, such as was seen at Abakur. Twenty thousand men threw themselves into the water and drowned in in the lake. Well, it's entirely possible that that was exaggeration. And I'm not sure we really will ever truly know how many people may have drowned uh, in that lake. But it was probably a lot less than than the uh, 20... Uh 20,000. Do you know if they've uh, um, dug it up? Yeah, I, I know that in recent years there's been a lot of uh, discovery of bodies of Russian soldiers that were sort of frozen in Russia after 1812. Do you know if they've uh, done any, uh, you know, digging up of the, of the, the, the skeleton? Well, I, 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 to my knowledge, they've done some, and that's why there's some question as to whether or not this vast number of casualties in the lakes is is accurate because to the extent that they have investigated it they've not found anywhere near uh, the number of, of uh, skeletons and so on uh, there might be more than one reason for that and of course it might not have just found them but I wouldn't doubt that, that Napoleon exaggerated and it's also possible that from on top of the Protzen Heights it appeared that there was an awful lot of folks you know doing that uh, and, and in fact that may simply have been a misinterpretation Interpretation of what they were seeing, an honest mistake, as it were, as opposed to to exaggeration. And one of the reasons I say that is because it's not like Napoleon really had uh, to exaggerate his victory. I mean, it was a tremendous victory, uh, regardless of of, uh, of of any exaggeration uh, that that may have taken place. And Napoleon uh, gives his army credit. He, he says in this bulletin, with respect to the men who distinguished themselves, it was the whole army that covered itself with glory. It constantly charged the cry of long live the emperor, vive l'empereur. And the idea celebrating so gloriously the coronation again animated the soldier. So, you know, there and, and there was a lot of truth to that. The soldiers were pretty fired up. I think they knew uh, that they were, you know, being led by a military genius and that they would have great victory. Uh, whatever else uh, is exaggerated in, in, in bulletins and elsewhere, uh, the, the love of the soldiers for Napoleon and, and, and his reciprocation to them is no uh, a small matter uh, and is a major factor in, in, in Napoleonic uh, uh, history. At any rate, the the the, the Russian uh, right, uh, Bagration's forces uh, to to Napoleon's left, uh, had a little bit of success against against the against the French, but but not a whole lot, and and pretty soon could see that they were extended out there pretty far, and and the center and the and and the Allied left was was uh, pretty much demolished, uh, and so they beat a retreat. And Napoleon pretty much lets them go. Uh, the the uh, uh, Napoleon didn't really want to antagonize too much the, the Russians. He had visions somehow of obtaining a good relationship with Russia. Now, it wouldn't happen until after the campaign of of, of uh, 06, as it, as it turns out, 07, uh, with Friedland, but but eventually that, that will happen. One does wonder what how it would have been if, if somehow there had been greater pursuit. So Bagration 
uh, extricates his men from a tricky situation and and gains a, a lot of credit in the process. Uh, but it's pretty much except for that. It's 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 all about the French on this one. The Russians lose eighteen thousand men alone. Uh, the Allied losses losses include one hundred and eighty artillery pieces. 30,000 prisoners of war, 20 generals. Apparently only around 1,400 French were killed. Uh, I mean, it's really a very lopsided, uh, defeat on, on, on the part of, uh, of the, uh, uh, Allies. And Napoleon writes, this day will cost tears of blood at St. Petersburg. May it cause the gold of England to be rejected with indignation. And may that young prince who has so many virtues to be called to the father of his subjects, tear at Alexander, tear himself from the influences of 30 fops who England artfully pays and whose impertinence injures his intentions, makes him lose the love of his soldiers, and throws him into the most ill-judged Operations, you know. I mean, that's uh, that's pretty strong stuff, and it's not all that uh, inaccurate. And I think Alexander himself was quoted afterwards as saying, "We are the babe. We are like babes in the hands of a giant." Uh, a pretty fair estimation of of uh, the perception of Napoleon after this point in time. You know, I believe that the the reception in Paris at the time was one of pure astonishment. I mean, even as used as 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 the the French were, the Parisians were to Napoleon's success. They were stunned that he could have routed all of these armies so quickly and, well, and so thoroughly. Well, certainly, certainly that's the case. Uh, I think, frankly, Napoleon was was somewhat surprised. I mean, it's always hard to say is is you know is Napoleon gambling and and sort of crossing his figures, or is he totally completely confident of the outcome? Uh, it's it's not always easy easy to be to be certain. I like uh, another, and, and you'll like this. You you you. you given some of the comments you've made for later in that bulletin Napoleon writes never was there a more horrible field of battle until he gets to Borodino that may be true yeah. from the middle from the middle of the immense lakes we hear still the cries of thousands of men who could not be assisted it will take three days before all the wounded enemy will be evacuated to Brunn the heart bleeds May so much bloodshed, may so many miseries fall at length on the perfidious islanders who are the cause of it. May the cowardly oligarchs of London bear the burden of so many evils. I, I, I knew that quote would, would ring well with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, do, you don't want to bring down more fire upon our heads that we're uh, anti-Anglo on this show. We're, we're, no, but, we but, say many times we're not. Some of our well, no, friends are British. Well, we're not, but Napoleon was, and, and Napoleon understood that the only real way to defeat the British was to turn all of Europe against the British. That, as particularly knowing as he knew about about the defeat at Trafalgar, which means you know any any near term expectations of, uh, of, of 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 invading England are, are pretty much by the boards. Uh, he knows that he has to isolate uh, uh, Great Britain, and and uh, and this kind of thing is exactly. Exactly uh, where what what he does. Anyway, it was a glorious uh, victory, and let me, let me read you a few 
excerpts from his proclamation on the 3rd of December uh, that we started the show off with. Soldiers, I am pleased with you. On the day of Austerlitz, you have justified what I expected for me from your intrepidity. You have decorated your eagles with an immortal glory. In less than four hours, an army of 100,000 men commanded by the emperors of Russia and Austria has been cut down or dispersed. Those who escaped your iron have drowned in the lakes. Forty flags, the standards of the Russian Imperial Guard, 120 pieces of cannon, 20 generals, and more than 30,000 prisoners are the results of this day to be celebrated forever. That infantry, so vaunted and superior to you in numbers, could not resist your impact, and henceforth you have no rivals to fear. Thus, in two months, the Third Coalition is conquered and dissolved. Peace can no longer be at a great distance. But as I promised to my people before crossing the Rhine, I will only make a peace that gives you some guarantees and assures some recompenses to our allies. Soldiers, when the French people placed the imperial crown upon my head, I entrusted you to keep it always in a high state of glory, which alone could give it value in my eyes. But at that moment our enemies thought to destroy and demean it, and that iron crown, which was gained by the blood of so many Frenchmen, they would have compelled me to place on the head of our cruelest enemies. An extravagant and foolish proposal, which you have ruined and confounded the very day of the anniversary of your emperor's coronation. You have taught them that it is easier for them to defy us and to threaten us than to vanquish us. Soldiers, when everything necessary to the happiness and prosperity of our country will have been achieved, I will lead you back to France. There you will be the objects of my most tender solicitudes. My people will see you again with joy, and it will be enough for you to say, I was at the Battle of Austerlitz, for them to reply, there is a brave man. Now that's brilliant. You know that that really is brilliant writing. Uh, it's going to inspire his troops. It, it places the glory of the battle on the troops, and and they just, of course, uh, ate it up. Now, there. Um, I guess we should wrap up the episode maybe with talking a little bit about uh, Austerlitz from a historical context. Um, you know, uh, I guess most military historians agree that not only was it, you know, one of the most significant uh, tactical uh, successes in military history, but from a particularly Napoleonic perspective, as I said earlier in the episode, this was really the first time when he had undisputed control of the entire French war machine. And it was probably the first time that Europe really came to learn the, the full meaning of a Napoleonic campaign. Because, as I said before, for the first time he had complete control over all of the marshals. Now, you mentioned something slightly derogatory about Bernadotte earlier on. Do you want to clarify that? Oh, well, I will 
spend plenty of time on Bernadotte. I've got better fish to fry today, but <laughs> Bernadotte will 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 be uh, traitorous in, in spite of the fact that he's made a marshal and is and is uh, close to Napoleon and and uh, uh, you know marries uh, the, the 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 sister of Napoleon's first girlfriend and so forth and so on. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is that uh, uh, Bernadotte will will in fact defy the emperor and Marshal Murat uh, in time will will defy the the emperor. Uh, but nevertheless, your your point is well taken. Napoleon is undisputably in charge. Uh, he, he, he wasn't technically in charge even of the army when he, when he went to, into the uh, second Italian campaign in 1800 as first consul. Uh, in theory, Berthier was in charge, uh, because the, the, the constitution would allow Napoleon to take direct command of the army. Now, no one thought for a moment that Napoleon was not in charge of the army, but, but, you know, he, he, he was still a relatively new kid on the block and he still was insecure. Uh, now he's been emperor for a year. He's got the Grand Armee. He's reorganized the army. He's created the martial lot, and the marshals are at this point, you know, pretty liberal, pretty loyal to uh, uh, to Napoleon. Uh, and they're certainly going to be loyal now because Napoleon has uh, just devastated uh, the, 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 the allies. Uh, Prussia clearly at this point is not interested in, in joining the coalition, at least not for now, although it won't, it won't take long before they you know, start to cause some trouble. Uh, the Russians uh, go back home. Uh, I still wish, frankly, that the French would have uh, pursued uh, them. They might even have caught the Tsar. It's, it's, it's hard to say, although Although Alexander actually, when he was in danger, managed to to pull a little uh, uh, fast one on, on on Napoleon's troops, thinking it was there was an armistice and so on. Uh, but Napoleon didn't didn't really worry uh, too much about that. The Austrians had nowhere to go. They were right next to 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 uh, Austria and close to Vienna. Uh, there was no reason to fight more. So uh, there's a very famous meeting between the Austrian Emperor Francis and and Napoleon. Uh, there's an, an, an armistice uh, uh, immediately that follows. There's still some possibility that the Archduke Charles, who's a very very good military commander, is going to come up and hostilities will begin again. Uh, but that doesn't happen. And eventually, on December 26, uh, 1805, uh, December 26, by the way, being my birthday for all of you who are out there looking for an excuse to shop and buy nice presents, uh, I hasten to add the year 1805 is not the year of my birthday, <laughs> although my students think it was. At any rate, the Treaty of Pressburg uh, was signed on the 26th of December. Uh, by the way, uh, in a wonderful room uh, in what is now Bratislava was called Pressburg is now Bratislava, the capital of the Slovak Republic. A gorgeous room that you can uh, go and, and, and have a look at uh, in the old uh, city hall. Uh, and Napoleon takes away a fair amount of, uh, of Austrian territory in Italy and Germany, uh, makes Austria pay a pretty fair uh, amount of money, takes a lot of art treasures. A lot of historians think that maybe he could have been a little bit more generous to the Austrians, that by being as vindictive toward Austria as he was, uh, that he may have sown some seeds for future uh, problems. And, and, and that may be uh, the case. The, the 
treaty included a personal guarantee by Francis that he would never fight against Napoleonic France again. Uh, that lasts for a while, and they become allies, and I think most of our listeners know that Napoleon actually marries into the family and so on, but all too soon he would break that promise, so it doesn't, uh, it doesn't work out. But Napoleon is victorious. He takes care of his soldiers. He's very good to his soldiers. He was especially generous to them. Uh, he he uh, gives an imperial decree uh, that widows of those who are killed get get lifetime pensions. You know, this is the first uh, uh, veterans benefits, if you will. Uh, if you were a general, you get 6,000 francs a year, which is a lot of money in those days. And if you were a private, you get as much as 200 francs a year, which is not chopped liver either. Uh, he personally adopts uh, the children of those kills. He, he, and he, he finds husbands, or he has people find husbands for the daughters, and he, he, he arranges for jobs to be given in the government for for the sons of the soldiers who were killed. He educates them at, at public expense. And here, and this may sound strange to us, but it was important to them, he allows them to add the name Napoleon uh, to, to their own name. So if their name was David Markham, you know, David Markham, it would now be David Napoleon Markham. Something I've not tried to do yet, by the way, in spite of what you might think. <laughs> Uh, wounded soldiers get a lot of bonus pay. All sorts of medals get out. The Legion of Honor is flowing like a river. Uh, and uh, he also, by the way, is careful to give full credit to those people on the other side. Some of his bulletins, and we may not have time for me to, to read you examples of that because I'd have to sort of find them here. Uh, but some of his bulletins specifically mentioned opposing commanders and opposing uh, armies as having fought bravely. Uh, good politics. It reads well in France because it makes him seem magnanimous, and it reads well in Austria and Russia and elsewhere because it shows him to be magnanimous and shows that he recognizes when he has fought a worthy foe. Now, just uh, one clarification on something you said earlier there when we were talking about Bernadotte, um, because I don't want to offend the House of Bernadotte, which we should point out is still the royal house of the Kingdom of Sweden and has reigned since 1818. That's correct. But uh, he actually married uh, Napoleon's girl, ex-girlfriend, Desiree, not the sister. It was... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, Napoleon's you're right. brother Joseph who married the sister. That's right. You're, you're exactly right, and I apologize. It, it shows you that uh, uh, even... Uh, even uh, David Markham can uh, have a slip of the tongue. I, I hate to correct you, but I know that you are on your medication there, and that the <laughs> <laughs> yes. Although I'm, I've, I've sunk to a new low. It's uh, a medication with an expiration date of uh, only 21 years instead of the preferred 30. Well, uh, but no, you're you're quite right. He 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 married uh, uh, Desiree, and uh, Desiree, of course, eventually becomes the queen of uh, Sweden. Uh, the the if you look it up, you'll find uh, that I believe it's uh, King Johan, uh, not uh, King Bernadotte, of course. He's known as King Johan of Sweden. And there's a huge statue uh, uh, to uh, 
to him uh, that that one can see and and one can write graffiti on if one wishes, I suppose. King Carl Johan, Charles John, Carl Johan. Yep, exactly. Exactly, Carl Johan. Now, something else interestingly uh, about the Battle of Austerlitz uh, is the way that it was remembered or, in fact, not remembered. Uh, you know, I guess, interestingly now, we're, we're sort of getting to the 200th anniversary of a lot of this stuff. Now, uh, we should I should have mentioned this when we did the um, coronation. I was actually in Paris for the 200th anniversary of the coronation. You dog! Actually, I, I was in... Um, uh, Ajaxio in Corsica for the celebration of the 200th anniversary of the uh, of Napoleon's birthday, not of his coronation. Well, it was the year of the coronation, but <laughs> let me start that again. I was in Ajaxio for the celebration in 2004, which was the 200th uh, anniversary of the, the coronation. Are you and sure you're not on some medication as well? I, I think that's my problem is I'm not on medication. It's, it's only uh, <laughs> 1 o'clock in the afternoon here. It's a bit early for me to be on the screen. Well, it's, it's 10 minutes to 6 here. <laughs> uh, well, it's too early for you too. But well, In the evening. In the evening. <laughs> but uh, I, one of the things that I did, I was very aware of when I was in uh, France in 2004 was the lack of of celebration around the anniversary of the coronation. Now, there were a couple of things on, you know, a couple of museums or galleries had exhibitions on, but there was very little being done or said. And according to Wikipedia, it said that uh, there was a lot of controversy because apparently French President Jacques Chirac and Prime Minister Dominique de Villepine, Villepin, Oh, no, my French uh, French listeners are going to get stuck. Villepin. Villepin, thank you. I think so. Did not attend any functions commemorating the battle. And, you know, it is still recognised as, you know, one of the great military victories in history, particularly for the French, who are particularly noted for their military victories outside of Napoleon's era. And is this is this your effort to give equal equal time to the French? So you so you 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 you've been always critical of the British, and you want to make sure you're going to dig at the French to to bring some fair and balanced coverage here. That's exactly right. <laughs> now, um, apparently, um, people from French overseas departments protested what they viewed as the official commemoration of Napoleon in 2004, arguing that Austerlitz in 2005, arguing that Austerlitz should not be celebrated since they believed Napoleon had committed genocide against colonial peoples. So, you know, yet again, there's always this debate around was Napoleon a warmonger or was he just defending the, uh, you know, defending France well, and French peoples? I don't know about genocide against the colonial peoples, uh, but I'll tell you that that it's always a little tricky. I mean, you got to remember now that these are European countries fighting European countries, and certainly in the case of the Austrians uh, and the Prussians, which would be Germany, uh, and and the French, you, they're they're now in, in and the British, of course, they're now in the uh, European uh, Union, and they're allies, they're friends, and. When one country celebrates a victory over another country, even though it be 200 years ago, you, you worry, I suppose, about offending people. 
it's not quite such a case with World War II, where we, it's easy to say, well, this wasn't a victory of, 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 of the Allies over Germany. It was a victory of the Allies over uh, Nazis and Hitler, uh, which the Germans, of course, recognized was a force of evil uh, and needed to be defeated. So it's okay to celebrate D-Day and so forth, uh, because uh, the, the Germans today don't, don't look back with any pride. Uh, on, on, on the Nazi regime, at least not very many of them do. But it's a little different when you're talking about defeating uh, a country like Austria in, in 1805, where you're, there's, there's no evil empire involved, there's no, there's no Nazi atrocities and so forth involved that you're, you're, you're trying to, to, to deal with. So I think that may be part of why... Uh, France was a little bit reluctant. There were celebrations of the coronation. There were activities uh, for that. Uh, they certainly, there are certainly are num- a number of people who celebrate his birthday every, every year and so on. But when it comes to to a victory like Austerlitz, you're right. And and a lot of the Napoleonic community, including the the Fondation Napoleonian and and others, were were unhappy about that and 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 would write uh, about that in the newspapers and, and on websites uh, but but so it goes I mean it's maybe it's a little bit of political correctness uh, maybe it's just being diplomatic uh, maybe it's uh, a country that's not so sure that it wants to promote too much a person that some people in the world you know place as, as as a bad guy I mean we have to recognize that that you and I and probably most of our listeners think of Napoleon as a as a positive force in history but I can tell you I've written uh, for example uh, uh, blurbs for uh, encyclopedias and so forth and uh, or even some of my books and I'll get a criticism back why well, he's he's too positive about Napoleon he has too many good things to say and I wonder if I had taken a very negative stance if I would have gotten the same kind of commentary that, well, he's too negative toward Napoleon. An awful lot of stuff that's written, particularly by British historians in the English language, and I wouldn't doubt that Austrian and and German and Russian historians, although I don't read them unless they're translated into English, uh, probably, you know, have negative things to say. Uh, But I believe, and I think that, that I believe with great justification that for all of his faults, and there were certainly faults, that Napoleon was a, a positive force. And I believe that the Battle of Austerlitz uh, is a positive uh, victory. And, and it was good for Europe to have Napoleon in power longer and not bad. <clears throat> Before you go to your closing, as I don't doubt that you will for a moment, <clears throat> I do want to read you one little thing here uh, from, from one of his bulletins right after and he's, because I talk about how he gave credit to, to the uh, opposing armies and I, I read he, we must not conceal an incident that does honor to the enemy the commander of the artillery of the Russian Imperial Guard had just lost his cannon he met the emperor sire said he have me shot I have just lost my cannon Young man, replied the emperor to him, I appreciate your tears, but one may be beaten by my army and still be entitled to glory. Beautiful. 
I mean, that's that's great. It's great writing. It's you know, you have to go back as far as Julius Caesar to find military writing as eloquent and as brilliantly done as Napoleon's uh, bulletins. If you out there listening to us have not read Napoleon's bulletins, I, I strongly encourage you to do so. And okay, part of that may be a plug for my book, Imperial Glory, which is the only place that you'll find in modern English all of the, or any kind of English, really, all of the bulletins and a whole bunch of other material. But go to some websites, you know, various important bulletins uh, are, are available on, on various websites and in other books, partially quoted anyway, and read some of what Napoleon writes. It's it's brilliant writing. And, and like I say, you you have to go back to, uh, to Julius Caesar's uh, commentaries before you'll find anything so well done of this kind of writing. I agree. Now, we we have to wrap up and we'll be back um, at some stage in the next month or so where we move on to 1806 uh, and you know, obviously Napoleon goes back to Paris once again, a, a hero, and it goes into a new round of troubles. But there, there, there's, some, there's some peace deals to be made, there's some uh, work to be done on the local front. But I'm just going to finish with uh, a letter that Napoleon wrote to Josephine. <laughs> I knew it. I knew you would have a quote to close. That's great. That's wonderful. Got a quote to close. This is a letter that Napoleon wrote to the Empress Josephine on the night of December 2nd after the Battle of Austerlitz. My dear Josephine, I have beaten the Russian and Austrian army commanded by the two emperors. The Russian army is not only beaten, it is destroyed. I'm a little tired. <laughs> That's a wonderful quote. I'm, of course, jealous is all good out that you have uh, beat me to it. But that's that's a wonderful quote, and that says it all. And by the way, if I'm looking at it, my clock correctly, if we finish in a few minutes here, we will actually be under an hour, which is a rare treat and means that I was correct. This might be a short one. I was going to cut the show after the end of that quote, but I'll cut it now. Thank you again, Mr. Markham. It's been terrific, sir, to have your uh, wisdom and knowledge on the subject at hand. And I look forward to talking with you again soon, my friend. Well, it's always my pleasure, Cameron. Uh, Thanks again to all of our listeners, and uh, we'll see you again soon.